Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and live walker, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and sybaritic feline lady, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about A Dream of a Thousand Cats, issue 18 from the Sandman comic book series. A Dream of a Thousand Cats was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Kelly Jones, inked by Malcolm Jones III, and colored by Daniel Vazo. Todd Klein lettered. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, along with assistant editor Tom Pyre. Cover by Dave McKean. A Dream of a Thousand Cats is, as you may guess, the one with all the cats. A pampered house kitten joins a gathering of felines in a graveyard where an elderly Siamese tells of her encounter with the Dream King and how she learned the power of dreams to shape reality. Little one, I would like to see anyone, prophet, king, or god, persuade a thousand cats to do anything at the same time. Time to wake up. All right, a quick note before we start. We decided to stop doing the long summaries because it just felt like a lot. We presume that anyone listening to this podcast has already read the story or when we get to it, seen the TV show. Given that, we've decided the summaries may not be that useful, especially in the deep detail that we were going into. So in the opening, we're going to give you a quick reminder of what issue we're talking about, and then we're just going to get right to the business. And now that we are getting to the business, Elisa, what did you think of A Dream of a Thousand Cats? So... We're recording this right before Thanksgiving, and I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of uh, Samin Nosrat and her salt, fat, acid, heat. So she talks mm-hmm. about, you know, varying your flavors. And we've had so many deep, bloody flavors in the Sandman yeah. that this, I mean, like like all of Neil's stories, this one has fangs. It has mm-hmm. teeth, but mm-hmm. it is such a palate cleanser. It is such a light, crisp, delightful breath of fresh air after (laughs) after all of, you know, serial killers and and um, dangerous alleys of of various kinds. Mm -hmm. But so I I, I think I really enjoy it on that level. And I also love the fact that this is it's a story about waking into self-awareness and Mm -hmm. perhaps also into a larger awareness of, of social injustice. And um, and I think all of that is is really wonderful. It would be so damn easy to get this kind of a story wrong the way the mm-hmm. movie Cats got it wrong. And by <laughs> it, I mean everything. You know, this could have been preachy. It could have been mm-hmm. what the Brits call treacly, but it succeeds. And I'm really dying to talk about how with you. Yeah, it was really fun. I cannot tell you after Calliope how much I enjoyed just watching a bunch of cats, even though, like you said, like it does have teeth. You know, I mean, when the uh, the cat's babies are tossed into the water and she can feel them drowning, you know, um, and what that does to her and how angry that makes her and how much that wakes her up to, you know, like the injustice of this situation that she's in, you know, um, it was really interesting. And, um, and that was, it was a tough moment, you know, cause my heart was breaking for this poor cat, but at the same time, it was, it was really, um, fun. It was interesting. I love seeing these cats. I loved seeing dream as a cat. We're going to talk a little bit about him being a shapeshifter. Um, so it's got this mix of like really cute and dark, especially with that ending, you know, um, where the, the little kitten is dreaming and the, the people are just like, oh, and she cute, you know, she's dreaming about your demise is what she's dreaming about. Um, but it was really Uh, It was a really fun, short story. And, you know, the darkness was not too much for me. You know, it wasn't it wasn't difficult for me to handle that level of darkness. So it was really kind of a nice mixture of cute and dark. I liked it. You know, as you were talking, I had this audio clip through my head. of You know how Tina Turner starts Proud Mary by saying, like, some people like to do things nice and easy, but we never do anything (laughs) just nice and easy. I feel like Neil never does anything just, you know, nice and cute. There's there's always that darkness. And um, and I think that's that's again, we'll talk about this more. But part of what Mm -hmm. I think makes makes this story work. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, we need that darkness. You know, I mean, we we need to have those discussions. Fiction is how we access some of the things that we can't figure out how to talk about. Um, and I think that that's where I think a lot of times that's where you go to horror for, you know, that's what you go to horror for is to kind of give you access to these things that otherwise we in polite society do not necessarily talk about some of these things. And we need to. We clearly, clearly need to. Um, and and also it's part of human experience. And that's what we want in our fiction, you know. Um, so I think that it's, it's one of those things that, like, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's great. Sometimes I struggle to handle the darkness, you know. Um, but it was nice to get a, a, a break this week with a, something that had a level of darkness that I was actually comfortable with. So that was awesome. Um, but before we get into the story, let's start as we always do with Dave McKean's art on the cover. What did you think of that? Well, you know, right away, you can see that the cover is lighter, lighter in tone. Mm -hmm. It does not feel, you wouldn't necessarily say this is a horror cover. Yeah. And what we see is it's a painted cover with this ornate gilded frame, and the frame is broken. Mm -hmm. And when we see this silhouette of a small cat, it seems to be leaping from a, a pillar and and out of the painting into the vivid blue of the sky toward where the frame is broken. So mm -hmm. it's sort of poised in midair between whatever's about to what it, whatever it's going to land on on the other side. There's also this wonderful swirl of gold clouds and they mm -hmm. look sort of magical and less menacing to me than anything we've seen so far in this Definitely. series. Um, I think there might be a gilded skeleton crow on the top of the frame. I don't know. If, yeah, I wasn't sure what that was. I'm not sure either. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of 3D along with the painting. And I yeah. forgot to say this about Dave McKean, but um, he wrote a book I, uh, illust no he didn't write this one he illustrated it's called Varjack Paw it's a children's yeah. book and it's got this wonderful piratical cat and I would just like to say that Dave also draws amazing cats <laughs> that's really really fun one of the things that I love about Dave's work and that I found really interesting is that he does kind of have a thing with frames. We're, we see frames a lot within his cover work. Um, on the cover of Lost Hearts, there were a bunch of frames without pictures and then one picture without a frame, without boundary or limitation. And here we have a frame that is broken and this cat trying to get out you know, from the border, from the boundaries to get outside of the boundaries that it's stuck in. And the only thing that it could possibly jump to is that cloud sky, you know? So it's one of those things that makes me think of um, like Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade when he has to take that leap of faith you know, and he steps out and it looks like there's nothing there, but there actually is a little uh, walkway for him. And that feels to me like what's going on with this cat. And I thought that was really kind of an interesting thing to put in um, in this cover. And, um, you know, the thing that I also noticed is that the frames that McKean works with tend to be ornate and very pretty. There is nothing minimalist about these frames, but they do remain frames. They remain boundaries. They, they keep you locked in. And every now and again, there's an escape from them. When we have empty frames and a picture without a frame, that's really meaningful to me. I haven't quite figured out exactly how it's all meaningful. I feel like I need to spend more time and clearly will as we go through this podcast with Dave McKean's art to kind of see these um, these leitmotifs, this repetition, you know, of these different elements that we see coming back. But what I absolutely loved is that here we have these frames and in this story, we actually have one of my favorite things, which is a framing device, right? We are telling this story as it is being told to this little kitten who escapes out the window, right? This little kitten in this regular little kitten life 
just jumping out the window, going to this meeting of the the rebellious cats to meet up with Norma Ray, you know, who's going to tell them all that they must dream, tell everybody to dream and we will dream and we will change the world. Um, and one of the things that I loved about all of that, too, is that, you know, we frame it with this kitten and then we come back where the kitten is dreaming and dreaming of, of course, as I was talking before the demise of the people that uh, that are looking at it thinking oh my god it's so cute as it it is trying to dream your subjugation you know that that, like reverse the power dynamic in that setup um which is really really fun so having that framing device around that um around that story that heartbreaking story from this cat that is really trying to change the world um i thought was really really fun um of course i always love dave mckean's art and the way that he expresses that um the way that it's never it's never a literal read. It's always very metaphorical. It's always very steeped in kind of dream language, which I thought was really fun. Um, which of course brings me to the dreamers dictionary. We were talking about dreamers dictionary and I actually got one. I got uh, what is called the dreamers dictionary by lady Stern Robinson and Tom Corbett copyright 1974 from grand central publishing. And so I went in there and I was like, okay, well let's look up cats, right? If you dream about cats, what does that mean? Um, and it says cats, a generally unfortunate omen indicating treachery and deceit in those you trust. If you killed the cat, you will defeat the purpose of your detractors. If you chase it away, you may expect a sudden stroke of luck. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I don't know who dreams about killing cats. I mean, I guess dreams, all sorts of things happen in dream. But like, I have never had a dream about a cat where I wasn't like petting the cat or taking care of the cat or like whatever. And so I find this a really interesting read of that. But if I had had a dream where I murdered a cat, you know, I'd be going straight to my therapist with that. That just, that feels just wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I... I don't know what to say to that, except I think that may be one of those places where just like the Cosmo bedside astrologer, you know, it's one sometimes one size doesn't fit all and not every Leo wants to wear, I don't know, tiger stripes. So it's exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like dreamers dictionaries, you know, there are some, I think, like you know, general symbols that that may have gotten into the universal consciousness. Um, but dreamers dictionary, like, I think that you know what your dreams mean. You know, you know what your symbols are. And um, and so that's the only way to really interpret dreams. But it's very, very fun to kind of take these elements and just kind of look in the dreamers dictionary and see what's up. I, I'll say that symbolically, for me, I think people see themselves in cats. Mm-hmm. which is which is interesting because yeah. cats faces are not as expressive as dogs faces and yeah. i wanted to talk about that in terms of the the challenge for an artist but mm-hmm. i think that symbolically we see ourselves in cats because cats are sort of they're not quite wild and they're not quite mm-hmm. domestic and yeah. they there is this sense that they stand in that liminal space where they're not of this category or that they're ours, but mm-hmm. not ours. I think they're the only domestic animal where if you release them into the wild, they'll, they'll do just fine and survive. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember when my daughter was little and we had a dog and we had two cats. I, I, she wasn't that little because this sounds very macabre, but I think I said something like, I don't think, I don't think our dog Magnus would eat us, you know, even if if we were no longer here. But I think I don't know about the cats. And she said, oh, I don't think the cats would even wait till we were gone. (laughs) No, if they got hungry enough, they absolutely would not wait. They would just wait until you went to sleep. (laughs) I know because I have cats and they are murderous little beasts. They're very, very cute. 
but just absolute psychopaths. I mean, <laughs> really, really, really bad. But um, but yeah, I really did appreciate the art. We have uh, Kelly Jones coming back again um, and uh, and doing some of this artwork with these cats um, that I really appreciated. It was, you know, you're saying like it's difficult for, to show cats like their expressions. And, um, and he really used their body language to get across so much. Yes. And I, mm-hmm. I just... Okay, so I, I just wanted, this is a little off subject, but um, when I was, uh, I was, I was very lonely, I was writing, I felt isolated in the country, and I got involved with community theater. And, uh-huh. you know, you don't always choose exactly what, you know, what they're doing the play they're doing. And this uh-huh. is my way of saying that I was in the community theater production of Cats. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> I was, uh, my friend Deborah and I were in our 40s and everyone mm-hmm. else, I think, was either a teenager or in their 20s. And here we, oh. no, there were some, I think, you know, Griselda was mm-hmm. was older. But really, I mean, it, it, it was, you know, there we all were in these really stinky unitards by the third performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had a, a strange relationship with Cats because I'd never seen it when I worked at DC Comics. Wow, I'm really off topic now. I'm so sorry. I'm That's way okay. off script. I love it. Okay, so I worked at DC for seven years, and Cats, mm-hmm. of course, was uh, on my way between the subway and work. Mm-hmm. We moved offices a few times, but Cats was always freaking there, <laughs> and it never <laughs> once occurred to me to try and see Cats. I just, yeah. I was like, there it is, the tourist show. And forgive me, everyone. I just, I that that's how I saw it. But then when I was, when I was in Cats, I learned, you know, kind of had to have some affection for the show. And I began to see uh-huh. the appeal of it. And then came Cats the movie. And <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't in the end see the movie, but I saw clips of it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I didn't see the movie. And it yeah. was so horrifyingly creepy. And you realize like people's time and creative energy and, and you know, that people worked hard on this. And so yeah. I, I don't, like everyone, I have the schadenfreude of, of the delight in making fun of someone else's creative mess. But there's enough of a part of me that says, well, wait a minute, as a creative myself, I have, how would I feel if I'd spent time and energy, you know, doing this? So, but what makes the movie so horrifying is if Mm -hmm. you get that balance between animal and human wrong, you're in what I think people call the uncanny valley and not in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So this is bringing me back long, long and winding road to <laughs> Kelly Jones. Uh-huh. Uh, so what he does, as you said brilliantly, he's using body language, but he's also using um, the, the shadows, the, the blacks, as they say, mm-hmm. in the inking. So you've got so many panels which are really defined by the negative space. And yeah. he's using mm-hmm. shape and design and I I think a lot of the best comic book artists are not just aware of the illustration but of the shape that that things are making here and and um and the use of shadow and light as well as 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 what Mm -hmm. the colorist adds with color Kelly also really varies his camera angles so you know we're, we're seeing some things from above we're pulling up we're pulling out um, mm-hmm. We are seeing sometimes cats looming over us. There's um, there's just, I mean, I think later when we go into our favorite pages and panels, I'll call out some of the things that I think are, are yeah. really terrific. But there are two traps that you can fall into when doing a cat comic. And, and like mm-hmm. one is the trap of cuteness and the other <laughs> is the trap of creepiness. And Kelly just, you know, walks with the adroitness of a cat of a cat seriously yeah no it's it's really amazing and the thing that impresses me so much with the artwork in these comics is that it is such a directorial dance and it's it's not just that 
you know, the, the artist is using framing and composition and camera angles and, you know, and, and things that are, are less, you know, are like uh, jagged edges and straight edges and, and gutters and everything that they use also gets across this kineticism, this movement. It really feels like choreography and it feels, it reads in a similar way to me the way that dance does, the way that when you watch a dance, you can feel in that movement, you're being told a story, you know? And that happens in this artwork too. And the thing that I think makes comic books different from any other kind of art is that it is a series. It's not just a frame. It is one frame moving into the next frame, moving into there is a kinetic energy as it moves through. And I'm finding this whole, I mean, I know everybody listening to this has been reading comic books forever and has already discovered all of this. And I'm talking about it like it's so new. Like, I know y'all already know this, but I'm getting to discover it for the first time. And it's really been a lot of fun. I'm enjoying that. Oh, I think I think you're wrong. I think there are probably a lot of new readers out there. And I actually mm-hmm. um, have been talking with uh, my friend who owns our local comic book store about, you know, doing some uh, panels or workshops for new readers, because I think yeah. we can assume that everyone just knows how to read a comic. And mm-hmm. I, I think... I am always so grateful when people don't assume I know how to do anything, even for, for example, the things someone has already showed me how to do the previous week. <laughs> but yeah, you're doing great, baby. Thank you. <laughs> I had I had my moments of panic. Like, why is there? Why has Lonnie written nothing in the show notes this week? Oh my god! It's like ten minutes to go time, and I'm looking at the wrong document. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It happens. It's totally fine. Um, but yeah, like you know, and it's funny that you bring up cats. I have never seen the movie nor the play. Um, I've seen a couple of clips, uh, you know, like when the movie came out and everybody was making fun of it, I would see it in like the night, you know, the late night shows and all of that. Um, and the thing is, is that, you know, when we're talking about one of the things that I wanted to address is this idea that you and I are both critics and creators. We are writers and we're also coming in here and, and, you know, critiquing, the work and talking about it because I think that you learn really interesting things from that. But one of the things that I always try to say, and I'm not sure if I've said it on this show yet or not, if I have, don't worry about it. It's worth my repeating it because I just want to say that in the battle between critic and creator, creator wins every day, hands down, that if you go out and you put something new into the world, you have done a greater net good than me looking at it and being like, well, I'm not really sure about that. Like um, the discussions that I have as a critic, I really try to discuss um, what fascinates me, you know, the story and like how all of that works. And if something doesn't work, like I generally will talk about it. Sometimes I think it's very important that we talk about the things that don't work. But I do that with the understanding that the person who went and created something that even somebody who creates something truly, truly dreadful, you know, went out and did a thing. And for that, they win. They are better than me. I will absolutely concede that point on anything. And I, I try to approach all of my criticism with that, um, with that general sense of I am talking about something that somebody else had the courage to get out into the arena and, you know, and be there and like, you know, put that out for other people to tear apart. That takes a tremendous amount of courage. And also the creating of things is a sacred act. I believe in that sacredness and I absolutely hold to that. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to like make that point. I don't know if I've said that I've said on other podcasts before, because I do a lot of critiquing because that's how I learn about story. That's how I've been learning about how stories work. Um, but I am grateful to every single one, even the people who make things, especially the people who make things that get shit on the way that cats get shit on. Like there are some things that just like, you know, are not necessarily great, but they are a creation, you know, and somebody did it. And I have tons of respect for that. So I just want to kind of throw that out there. I think, well, I think that is, that is an excellent point. I, and I will say that a lot of the things that I love 
mm-hmm. are are things which for, you know, I, I love them and maybe they're campy, but I also think that beyond the campy, there's there's a lot of good. Because I, I was realizing with with this issue that I was thinking mm-hmm. of it as Planet of the Cat's Paws. And... <laughs> And kind of like Planet of the Apes. Now, I Mm -hmm. was a huge, huge Planet of the Apes, the original 1960s Planet of the Apes. So I'm going to do a little summary to just go into what what I was thinking about. So in this story, we've got the elderly Siamese. And she came to realize that she was a slave when her kittens, sired by a stray tabby, were summarily dispatched by the owners. And this leads her on a quest uh, that that ends up with her dreaming herself into the dreaming, mm-hmm. and she demands an off an audience with Morpheus, and I I know I'm gonna regret this. Maybe he's Morpheus. Okay, I love that so much. Like I love you already, but that just made me love you a little bit more. <laughs> I I think it's gonna be a love hate thing. I just I looked at that. I was like, God. Okay, I love it. Thank you. Anyway, so here he is, a cat dream king. And here is a a big black cat. He shows the traumatized young cat a vision of an alternate reality where cats are huge. uh, And this is supposed to be the past uh, where they kept humans as pets and hunted them as prey. And in this Mm -hmm. planet of the cats, humans are the cat's paws. That is to say the, (laughs) the, you know, things being used. Mm -hmm. So this kind of raises for me some of the same questions as the original Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston. Take yeah. your paws off of me, you damn stinking ape. Anyway, uh, is <laughs> is the cat... By the way, okay, this is. I'm just going to digress again. Yeah. In all of the remakes of Planet of the Apes, they've made it more sexist. I don't understand why. In the original Planet of the Apes, there is a strong female role... Zira, mm-hmm. the chimpanzee scientist. She's not a sex symbol, but she has a really integral role. And then they do that thing in the future stories where mm-hmm. they have a woman and they say something like, and she's a you know big scientist, whatever, but she has nothing to do. So yeah, I, we they- actually did um, regress a bit. There were some more um like more feminist characters in like the 80s and the early 90s and then we kind of slapped that down pretty hard culturally for a while um and now hopefully we are coming back not just with better feminist representation but representation on all of the uh inclusivity scales um i think that we've we've got to get a lot more um proper representation above the line which is really really huge um but yes yes so uh so here we are uh humans as the playthings of the uh of the the cats now so yeah so tell me more about this idea of the the humans as the cats paws well, the the question that I think is raised by this mm-hmm. is, would the world be better off if apes were in charge or if cats were in charge? And I don't really think the story is is leading us in that direction. There's mm-hmm. nothing in the text here that's saying, and, you know, cats at least wouldn't pollute the planet, um, right. <laughs> which is probably true. I don't know. But what it it leaves me with in terms of how is this working as a parable? What does this all mean? Mm-hmm. Is that it's this very trenchant parable that basically boils down to reality begins in dreams. Mm-hmm. It's it's aspirational imagining dreams as or, or lucid dreams, not unconscious dreams that mm-hmm. occur to you. But that is, I think, at the, the root of this. And so that... Yeah. It is it is a very unsentimental uh, story, and and that's part of what I think makes this work is that mm-hmm. when the cats say ah and look how things were when we were in charge, it's it's not like they are doing wonderful things. They are simply the kings and queens, 
And well, yeah, because it's really yeah. about power. Like the particular types of, you know, um, of, of beings that end up with power. Like if women, if this was a matriarchal society and women had been the ones who were in all the power, we, if we had all that power, we would be just as much assholes as anybody else. Like I think that when, when only one group has power, that's the problem. Um, and that's when things get bad because when we were looking at the world where the cats were, you know, they hunted the humans and killed them. At least we take care of them. I feed my cats. I clean their poop. Like, I don't know who's in charge here, but it's probably not me. Well, you know. Okay, two things about that. There is a sybaritic um, feline garden. Like some one sybaritic <laughs> feline lady has a pleasure garden, and I guess I don't know what those humans were doing, but uh, <laughs> but you know there is there is that aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, also, and I'm sure you know this, but there is some parasite or or, or some compound in some. Uh, feline yeah toxoplasmosis that makes you do their bidding yes. yeah makes you like a zombie for the cats yeah yeah and i've got it i've had cats since i was little so whatever it is i've got it i'm absolutely a zombie for my cats and i take care of them so i don't know in real life who has the power but it's an interesting discussion of of power dynamics and what happens when one group has all the power um, you know, the problem is an unbalance of power between groups. And I think that no matter what group has the power, they will use it um, cruelly, <laughs> generally, is, is what I've observed. And I do think, you know, that there have been all these studies that creativity and cruelty seem to go hand in hand. The more, mm-hmm. the more intelligence you have, the more ability to create beautiful artwork on your cave wall, the more uh, you likely are to be an asshole as well to the Creatively other monkeys. Cruel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that we have to wrestle with as humans. And that's why stories are, are really important. And that even though um, even though this is a story of cats, um, because these are sentient cats with wants and desires, um, everything is coded human. Everything sentient in a story that is, you know, that can think and want and act and has agency, um, that's coded as a human experience anyway. So, like, there's still some of that human experience in there, um, but we're talking about it in terms of cats, which makes it really, really fun. I mean, uh, you know, like, I really enjoy that aspect of this. Me too. And I think that because this is a relatively simple story, it doesn't have a complex subplot, you know, we can see a part of what comics do best or do very, very (laughs) well. And I think when it comes to cats that can speak, well, they're communicating telepathically, the -hmm. very designed look of these pages you know, we've got the glorious image. Um, I, the, I've lost the page numbers in the one I'm reading, so I don't know exactly which page, but it's mm-hmm. uh, the lanky, elegant Siamese is sitting atop an angel monument. And the uh, there's, there's a way in which the uh, lettering is on either side of it. And there, Todd Klein has just made these beautiful thought balloons with beautiful mm-hmm. tails, the way the lettering looks, it's all, there's a, a, a few shots that are, there, I think there's at least two which have the white background and, and, and the cat on top of the monument. Then there's this mm-hmm. other image where it's, um, I think there's a black panel with just the moon and mm-hmm. the cat's beautiful blue eyes that are just, between Kelly's art and Danny Vazo's colors, just, you know, an incandescent blue, Mm -hmm. and you've got the cat's fangs. And so you've got all of these places where your brain is filling in the missing elements. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's allowing your imagination to come out and play. And that really keeps things on the right side of the uncanny valley. Yeah, definitely. It definitely, definitely does. Um, and it is, it is really beautiful how all of these, um, 
all of these panels are very cat-like. They're they're elegant. They're live. They're moving in this. And again, how I will never understand because I'm not an artist. I can't draw stick figures. I'm terrible. So I will never understand how artists are able to get that elegant cat-like kineticism into these panels, so that the panels kind of move with that liveness of the cat. Like that's it's crazy. I don't know how they do it. It's one of the skills that I think mm-hmm. goes um, for non-artists. We don't realize that it is a skill that artists really look for. It is, mm-hmm. I think, in that sweet spot between precision and looseness. And I, I had this wonderful art teacher uh, a few years back, Todd Petit. And one mm-hmm. of our assignments was uh, the model kept moving the same arc of movement and she was never still and then he said draw it and so you had to figure out what part of the movement are you going to choose and you know so this is part of the skill set and so if anyone's listening and is an artist or is interested I think that a lot of times now students start by drawing from photos and from Mm -hmm. reference and from other still images if you want to get that sense of movement, you know, you really have to go to life drawing and, Mm -hmm. and figure out that that beautiful blend of looseness and precision. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing to me. Like I, again, I'm a terrible artist and I just have such tremendous respect and admiration for what they do because it is so incredibly effective and I have no idea how they do it. Like, to me, it's just magic. And I enjoy it being just magic. I don't want to know everything. I love having that, like, not understanding it, but being able to appreciate it is, is a really sweet spot for me with the art. So I really enjoy that. Um, one of the other things that I found really interesting here is the the dream world, the, the world building of the dreaming. Uh, it does not just belong to people. Although the cat gets there and the skeleton bird says, what the hell are you doing here? There's nothing here for you but the cat is there asserting herself saying I am here to talk to the big guy I am not fucking around you know um so I thought except, that was just a really... except she's a Siamese so it would be like <laughs> rare, rare. <laughs> sorry I just <laughs> she manages to get it all across yeah, definitely yeah. um but I love that um that she finds her way into the dreaming I love the um you know, the determination of this cat to find the answers, what she's after are answers. And then the the bird says, you can't have justice, you're never going to get that. You know, you can have wisdom, you know, you can't have wisdom, but you can have an answer or something like that, right? You know, it was like one of the where you can find out what it was that happened. And then of course, we have our shapeshifter Morpheus again, right? Here we are, and we are, everybody sees dream through the lens of their own existence. And so this cat, of course, sees dream as a cat. Um, And it was so fun to see dream interpreted in the form of a cat and still completely recognizable as that is dream. Like if you had no, you know, um, none of the very designed, you know, uh, word bubbles for him, speech bubbles for him, if you just look at that cat, you know that cat is dream. And being able to interpret dream's general physicality into a cat form and make it recognizable is again, like, again, because I know nothing about art and I don't know how to do it. And I'm a terrible artist myself. To me, I'm just looking at it. It's like magic how how they were able to do that. It's just incredible. Yeah, no, it's... it's um... It's true. And I think what we're going to, well, oh gosh, I've got a couple of things to say about this. So I think the, so that cave mm-hmm. uh, is Sandman's castle in the dreaming. Yeah. And those three, uh, I think this is the first time we've seen the guardian, the, mm-hmm. the gatekeepers. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a wyvern, a hippogriff and a griffin. Mm-hmm. And we'll see them again. I think it will be Kelly Jones showing us again uh, as, as we see them in, in the seasons of season of mist. But what's fascinating is it's not just that Morpheus, but the entire kingdom, the realm of the dreaming is reshaped by mm-hmm. the dreamers who visit it. And yeah. that it shows the power of, of, of Morpheus and the power of the dreamers of his mm-hmm. subjects. So that's a really cool thing. We've seen 
Morpheus as a cat once before. Mm-hmm. And that's in the very first storyline when Alex yep. uh, Burgess finally has a dream and he follows a cat, which goes and sits on a throne and mm-hmm. then turns into Morpheus. By the way, I realized last week when we were talking about um, Calliope, right at the yeah. end, there was this major clue and I didn't say anything about it. And I just want to acknowledge now, I was looking back at the end of it and I was like, oh, I should have called out at the end. There's a little clue about stuff that will come um, mm-hmm. in in uh, Maddox's little, you know, I can't remember yeah. anything at all. But anyway... Uh, mm-hmm. I will leave that now since I simply noticed that I hadn't, hadn't, um, hadn't said that. But yeah, no, I think there's so much that is really fun here about watching mm-hmm. what is transformed and yet, as you say, still so very recognizable. Um, it's, it's just part of the game of the dreaming. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And for artists to be able to interpret that so effectively, um, is really kind of amazing. Um, I, I love this idea too. I mean, one of the things that when I talk about stories and storytelling is I always tell my students that stories are literally the most powerful force on earth. Um, you know, it's, it's actual life and death. You know, we go to war based on the story of who is the hero and who is the villain. You are a result of a story that your parents told each other, be it soulmates or one night stand or whatever, right? Um, so I always open with that when I'm telling my students about the power of stories and here we've had dreams as stories throughout this that they're that dreams are stories and dreams carry with them the power that stories and narrative carry carry with them and the idea that you know humans were able to change the nature of the world by dreaming all together. And it was maybe a thousand of them. And that's why this cat is like, we got to get a thousand cats. They got to dream this dream. You know, Um, I love this. There's this one line, dreams create the world anew every night. Um, And they changed the universe from the beginning of all things until the end of time. They retconned. Dreams like retconned reality. And the idea of that, that concept as being the core of this story is probably one of my favorite things about this particular story, about this short story, that even though it is a short story, we're not going to be spending you know, time following a, a bunch of stories about these cats. This is a one-off story. Um, but what I like about it is that it does give us a different angle from which to look at this universe. And, you know, and dreams create the world anew every night. It's such a great idea and such a great way to express that idea. I kind of love it. I love it, too. And I, you know, I want to say it's it's funny because I, I keep wanting to say little things about animals because mm-hmm. I I think... How can I put this? I I don't want to be soapboxy, but I do think there is a way in which we often think that it's cute or sweet to talk or anthropomorphic to talk about them dreaming. Yeah. We're pretty sure that dogs and cats dream. We see their rapid eye movements. We can hear Mm -hmm. them, you know, trying to run in their sleep. And that means that they do have interior lives that we... I think don't often credit them with there. There's, you know, I I think in, there are still animal behavior programs where they Uh teach that dogs and cats can't really experience love. I think Mm -hmm. for a long time, people acted as though animals uh, couldn't feel pain the way that people did because they couldn't express it verbally. And Mm -hmm. that also went for human infants. And Mm -hmm. I, I think we have, um sometimes the fear of anthropomorphizing experience has led us to de I don't know that we don't have a word for it not dehumanize but depersonize yes. animals mm-hmm. maybe animals have a personhood even if they are not human and mm-hmm. uh so I I feel that there is something lovely about this story also as a very real reminder that animals Mm -hmm. have dreams. Yeah, 
let's go ahead and move into Lucian's library because you got some things. Now, Lucian's library, everybody may or may not have some spoilers. If you are super spoiler sensitive, you may want to skip ahead a little bit. But we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Netflix and Sandman, right? So as I was uh, looking up, I, I actually had a, just a moment of complete confusion where I was like, is this issue 17 or 18? And as I was looking up, I found this amazing quote. So this is from Neil on Twitter. Over mm -hmm. a couple of days in June 2019, every streaming network came and pitched us for Sandman. Netflix won because they convinced us they cared most about the material and would let us just get on with it. Dream of a thousand cats and all. So far, so good. And I think that was 6 uh, one twenty one. Mm -hmm. So I got really excited because I was thinking, wow, the, uh, the, the question of whether or how they would do Dream of a Thousand Cats was clearly integral to Neil's mm -hmm. decision to go with Netflix. So that, yeah. that does make me very excited to see how they, how they do this episode. Well, doing a short story in a TV series is not unheard of. I mean, you know, uh, most TV shows used to be little short stories that would run. Law and Order is a short story every time, you know. Um, yeah, there's some, even in Law and Order, there's some serialized stuff happening. Ever since the VCR happened, we got very excited about the ability to have serialized uh, storytelling. But now we see us moving back into things like Black Mirror, which is an anthology series, which is a short story every week, similar to the way The Twilight Zone used to be. Um, so being able to combine a serial story with world building short stories as well, I think is going to be a really interesting approach and aesthetic and and seeing how they pull that together and make that move smoothly with the rest of the storytelling that they're doing is going to be a really interesting, you know, interesting thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to see that. I, I And I love cats. So I mean, I'm always I'm going to love that. <laughs> Me too. Absolutely. The other thing that I thought I would mention this week is in the lettering, I've already talked about how great Todd Klein is. You know, there's a, a thing in comics, which is bolding. And mm -hmm. it's you bold certain words to give emphasis. And mm -hmm. I, I hope that, you know, people are if they're reading along, it, it means that as you say these words, there is a particular emphasis on some. So I just uh, looked at uh, this is a quote. I was not always as you see me today. Once, many yesterdays gone, I, like many of you, was in the thrall of human beings, living in their world, plaything, possession, and toy. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, those last three words, the word always was bolded before, but also plaything, possession, and toy. And you get that sort of rhythmic poetry uh, yeah. as, as a visual message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really nice. And it's just like another tool, you know, another visual tool, because this is a visual medium, you know, um, and it does aid in the, you know, especially for those of us who read by subvocalizing, that having that emphasis in there does give it a musicality to it. And again, choreography in the visuals, musicality in the words, poetry, you know, I mean, it's just such a combination of so many different art forms kind wait, of all pulled together. Wait, what is subvocalizing? Oh, subvocalizing. Uh, that's when I'm sorry. I said that like everybody knows what it is. Um, I it's it's when you're reading something and in your head you will say the words out loud rather than um, than just read them and instantly interpret them. Um, a lot of people do that, and so one of the things for people who want to speed read is they teach you to skip the subvocalizing where you're reading it aloud in your head and you're actually saying the words in your head. Maybe you don't subvocalize. I do. When I read, I the the words are actually like uh, like vocalized in my yeah, head. But is there another way? I didn't realize there was another way to read. Uh, yeah, no, apparently uh, speed readers are able to just look at the words and completely interpret them without subvocalizing, and that saves you a little bit of time. For me, I actually prefer the subvocalizing because totally. it gives, yeah, it gives me a performance, right? I am performing 
all of the words in my head as I'm reading them. And I like that performance, especially when it comes to fiction. When it comes to nonfiction, maybe I could see wanting to uh, bypass that and jump straight into just the absorption of the information. Um, But I think that in fiction, there is a performance to be had from that process. Mm -hmm. And I think that I prefer to have that. I prefer to read a little slower in fiction to give more of my time to that experience because the performance of it um, is is an important part of that experience for me. And the nice thing about the, the bolding and the choices with the lettering is that it gives me a sense of how that performance should be done. It gives me a cue, you know, to how to perform it in my head. So I, I like that. Well, that's cool. I, I just, I guess I didn't realize there was another way. Um, I, I've tried to speed read and it is not for me. I'm I'm just not that kind of person. I don't process information that way. So it's not going to work for me. But that's how I learned about subvocalizing. Um, all right. So, Elisa, we've been talking about all the amazing art in this issue. What's your favorite page? Um, it's a favorite two page because it's the two page mm-hmm. spread of all the cats in the graveyard um, mm-hmm. with you've got so many different kinds of cats. You've got this beautiful, spooky old Victorian graveyard. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just going to be a lovely preview for the work Kelly will do depicting all the myriad of demons in Season of Mists. Oh, gosh, I'm so looking forward to that. Um, the page where the cat goes into the cave and first sees Dream Cat, that is my favorite. It's all shades of blue and black and white you know, everything in there. And there is such a lovely visual harmony. And again, I love the way that you look at this cat and you just, you know, it's dream. Even if you just looked at that page and had no context for anything else, you would be like, that is dream as a cat. Like you just know, you know, who that is. Um, And the, the, uh, the skill in the art to be able to get that across is just kind of amazing. Um, What's your favorite part of the story? I love the part where the kitten says very unkittenishly that mm-hmm. what the Siamese cat um, had had uh, been talking about felt like the truth or mm-hmm. a truth anyway. Interesting. Yeah, because the whole world had been retconned. So it was the truth, but it is no longer the truth. It is a truth. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. I love that last page where the kitten is trying to dream these humans into submission so she can eat them. And the humans are like, oh, is she cute? <laughs> that is such a perfect ending. And, you know, and of course, bringing us, you know, through this framing device, you know, of this little kitten's experience of, you know, trying to turn the world back into a world where kittens were on top, you know, where cats were on top. Um, and it's such a, it's such a fun little twist on this whole world building and gives us access to a space that we probably wouldn't have gotten to in the regular serialized uh, stories that are coming through for dream so that makes it a lot of fun i liked it all right If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now, so thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, justice is a delusion you will not find on this or any other sphere. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or be a cat and keep your own counsel. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, Revelation can be yours, but only if your heart is strong. We will be back next time with A Midsummer Night's Dream, issue 19 of the Sandman series. Until then, why have you ventured into the heart of the dreaming little cat? There is nothing for you here.